0: America's Oldies But Goodies, Episode 27.
1: Slow down. I went to bed that night feeling really great, and the next morning, I get up and about 9.30 the phone starts ringing, and... and uh, it's all the record companies that had said yes the day before, telling us, uh, "Listen, Tom, we gotta, we gotta pass." Oh, jeez. I said, what do, you, "What do you mean you gotta pass?" Yeah. I thought we had a deal. Huh. And finally, Jerry uh, Wexler at, it, at Atlantic uh, told me the truth that um, Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, had called all the other labels and scared them, and backed them down, and told. He says he, he told everybody that. To, This is my record. Back off. Oh, (laughs) jeez. And and, uh, they did.
2: everyone, and welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past. We're visiting the 60s with host Dick Scopatoni, whose pop group Harper's Bazaar had a hit record back then called Feeling Groovy. He'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation, not only with the most magnificent music ever made, but also the politics, protests and pretty much everything that happened in the swinging 60s. So, Dick, who's on today's show?
0: Thanks, John. Crystal Blue Persuasion, I Think We're Alone Now, Hanky Panky, Crimson and Clover, there's a lot of them, 23 gold records and nine platinum albums for Tommy James and the Shondells. Tommy's here today. I'm going to talk with him about his live album recorded at the Bitter End in New York City and his book, Me, the Mob and the Music, which is Tommy's story of Morris Levy, known as the godfather of the music business. The book is part Part roll fairy tale, part valentine to a bygone era, and part mob story that reads like a music industry version of Goodfellas. And we ain't gonna forget about
1: it. That's next with Tommy James. So we just want to put uh, our energy together with yours and make something happen, and let's do it right now. Here we go.
3: for retro and vintage merchandise you'll find some fabulous buys at dick's website americasoldiesbutgoodies.com autograph records tiki mugs golf memorabilia even a paul mccartney signed album cover check it out at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com by the way you can listen to every episode of our show there too that's americasoldiesbutgoodies.com
0: BMI, which is Broadcast Music Inc., one of the companies that tracks airplay for recording artists so they can calculate royalties, recently presented Tommy James with an award for his music being played more than 21 million times on the air. Tommy's book, Me, the Mob and the Music, is on Rolling Stone's top 25 best music memoirs list and is now in development for a film. And by the way, I finished reading it last night. It's a knockout of a book. A lot of great stuff happening for Tommy James and the Shondells. Over the weekend, I listened to his live CD, which was recorded at the Bitter End, New York City's oldest rock club in Greenwich Village. And the hits just kept on coming. I think most of the songs on the CD became top 40 hits. We're going to talk about that music and his association with Morris Levy, who started Roulette Records, the label that their first number one hit, hang Panky Panky was on, and we're probably going to hear a bit more about Morris Levy, also known as the godfather of the music business. So, Tommy James, welcome to America's Oldies But Goodies. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine, and I'm glad to have you on. And as I mentioned, I finished reading the book last night. Captivating read. Well, thank and you. What's interesting? I saw bits and pieces of myself in there because so much of the early stuff that you were doing was the same thing that Harper's Bazaar was doing on the West Coast, sure. and you were doing it on the East Coast. That's and right. I, I spotted a name, Connie Denavi. She did PR for us, and I think she probably early on might have done some PR for. You guys.
1: She did. She was my very first public relations guru. Okay. And, uh, uh, boy, she had what a story she has. You know, she was. Uh Uh, one of the real pioneers in in the record business.
0: Yeah, yeah. She goes back, and I don't know if, I I don't know how she might have started any connections on the West Coast. I know that early on, before Harper signed with Warner Brothers, we were with a small label in San Francisco, and there may have been a connection because there was a couple of DJs out of Philadelphia, Big Daddy, Tom Donahue, and Bobby Mitchell, who came to San Francisco and uh, took over the, noon to six slot on kya which was the big rocker in those days and uh, i think they might have known connie anyway i know you've got a lot of stuff going on i've looked at your schedule a lot of dates coming up and we can talk about that but let's start with a brief overview of your professional background and let's begin with with the years before your successful time in the mm-hmm. music business, what, what was it like growing up? In, uh, and tell me, because i got three different towns going, what was <laughs>
1: the, the main town you grew up in? Well, basically, I uh, started playing music back when I was just a little kid. Started. My grandfather bought me a ukulele when I was four years old. Uh. And, uh, so I was learning things on the radio even back then. And I got my first guitar when I was nine, and I taught myself how to play. And that was an acoustic guitar, my first electric guitar when I was 11. Excuse me, I was, I was 10.
0: 10 and your first electric guitar at 10 at 10 and did i see in the book did you say that you started on a stella yes i started on a stella Did you really? <laughs> yes it was a four-string stella that i inherited from my older brother and i probably was maybe around 13 or 14 but you
1: know they're still making them they are You know, they were an inexpensive guitar, and that was all I could afford, or my folks could afford at that moment. And so they bought it for me, never knowing I was going to be playing it the rest of my life. Not that particular Stella, but but guitar. And so, uh, you know, I started playing everything I could on records, buying records and and singing, and uh, then my first electric guitar when I was 10, and, uh, you know, started learning guitar licks and, and, you know, as much as I could. And then when I was 12 years old, I started my first band, and we were called the Tornadoes, and this is in my hometown of Niles, Michigan, back in 1959. Yeah,
2: Niles, Michigan.
1: Yeah, I was in seventh grade, and we started a little band to play the, the junior high variety show. Which we did, and got such a tremendous response. We just kept the band together, and started playing school dances and sock hops and things like that. Yeah. And I got a job at a record store in my hometown selling records, and I was allowed to promote my band out of the record shop,
3: which okay. was great.
1: So we had two little label deals. By the time. I was out of school. Uh, one was with a label called North, Northway Sound, and we cut a little uh, record called Long Ponytail. And when I was uh, 16, we got a, a, a record deal on Snap Records, which was a local outfit. And one of the four sides that we did was, ended up being my first hit record, Hanky Panky. Wow, yeah. And, um, and you were 16. Yes.
0: That's like a junior in high school. Okay.
1: And right. uh so, so it was the record was released in 1964. And so it went, uh, it, it went number one locally and it, it really kind of caught on except we had no distribution. So we sort of forgot about the record after a while and, you know, it came and went. And in 1965, I graduated from high school and I took my band on the road and we played, uh, by that time, by the way, when we, we recorded Hanky Panky, we changed our name to the Shondells. Okay. Yeah. And at that point, you know, anything with an E-L-L-S on the end of it right. sounded music.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. No, I'm so, trying to remember the Hondels. Yeah, like Gary the Hondels, that's yeah, right. right.
1: Yeah. So anyway, uh, I took my band on the road in 65, and and we're playing clubs in the Midwest. And in early 1966, right in the middle of our two weeks, It'll, at a dumpy little club in Janesville, Wisconsin. Uh, the guy goes belly up. The, the IRS shuts him down for not paying his taxes. Mm, <laughs> the club oh, owner. Brother. But that's how the good Lord works, because we, had to, we were sent back home then, back to Michigan, and feeling like losers. But as soon as I got home, I got the call that changed my life. I got a call as soon as I got home from Pittsburgh. From the record distributor there, Fenway Distributors, who told me that this record I had done almost three years, two years before that, Hanky Panky, had been bootlegged in Pittsburgh and they sold 80,000 copies of See? it in 10 days amazing. and were sitting at number one.
0: Amazing. That's just got to blow America. you away. Yeah, yeah,
3: amazing.
1: <laughs> and that literally began my career. They asked me to come to Pittsburgh, which I did. And I uh, picked up uh, a local group to be the Shondells because I couldn't put the original group back together. And uh, a week later, we're in New York selling the master. And that's literally how my career started.
0: One of the things I got from the book was there was so much activity really all the way through the book, a ton of activity going on, a lot of movement happening. But even at your young age, and we're talking 18, 19, 20 years old, you were moving. You were were cooking already.
1: Well, as soon as we got to New York to sell the master, I was really delighted because we got... Oh, a yes from Columbia. We got a yes from, of course, we had a regional breakout in the trade papers from Pittsburgh. It was a major market. So we we got a yes from Columbia, from RCA, from Atlantic. Remember Sutra Records? Oh, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the last place we took the record to was Roulette. Roulette was a pretty good indie label. They would had a bunch of hits. But I really thought we were going to be with one of the corporate labels. And uh, I went to bed that night feeling really great. And the next morning, I get up and about nine thirty, the phone starts ringing, and and uh, it's all the record companies that had said yes the day before, telling us, uh, "Listen, Tom, we gotta we gotta pass." Oh, jeez! I said, "What? Do you, what do you mean you gotta pass?" Yeah. I thought we had a deal. <laughs> and finally, Jerry uh, Wexler at it, at Atlantic uh, told me the truth that um, Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, had called all the other labels and scared him and backed him down and told he says he told everybody that this is my record back off. Oh, geez. <laughs> and they, and uh, they did. And so, you know, we were apparently going to be with roulette. It was the first uh, offer I couldn't refuse.
0: Yeah, you know, what's amazing about that? And as I as I read the story, the whole Morris Levy story is absolutely fascinating. And it's right out of the movies, of course, to some extent, I suppose you could see yeah. the Sopranos. And I, and I really urge my listeners, it's me, the mob and the music. You got to check it out by Tommy James. We'll talk about it more as we go along but one of the things i noticed and maybe just because i was a west coast kid and and we recorded in la in those days new york and la might as well have been on two different planets Uh, that's true things were completely different i don't know how much early on for you that you actually got out to the west coast but did you have a picture of what was going on on the west coast while all the new york new jersey stuff was happening
1: well, of course, I was selling records at the record store all through high school. So I got a pretty good idea of uh, the groups that were happening on the West Coast. But, of yeah. course, I had never been there at that time. In fact, our first network show was in L.A., uh, uh, Dick Clark's Where the Action Is. Yeah, sure. This was, oh, early on. What, uh, I just wanted to, to, to say that we ended up with Roulette. And roulette then took hanky-panky to number one all over the world. And so uh, the reason that our relationship with roulette was so scary, so crazy, and tumultuous was that roulette, in addition to being a functioning Indie label was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we didn't know any of this.
0: Right. Yeah. You didn't know what you were getting into. And,
1: you know, we'd meet somebody in Morris's office and he'd introduce <laughs> me to somebody. And a week later, we'd see him doing the perp walk, you know, taken out of a, out of a warehouse in New Jersey in handcuffs. <laughs> yeah. You know, is yeah. that the guy we just yeah. met? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Crazy. Well, you know, uh, this was, uh, and we, so of course, we started recognizing people people we'd seen on TV and in the news, you know, gangsters. So that was the first thing that happened. But, you know, if I had been older and a little smarter, I'd have probably been scared. But all we cared about was having the hit, you know. And so uh, Hanky Panky uh, went to number one. And Say I Am, which was our second record, went top five right behind it and uh, did another million units. That's the moment that I came out to L.A. Okay. Roulette had a whole team on the West Coast as well. You know, I got my taste of of L.A. real quick. And, of course, I loved coming out to L.A. L.A. was a gas back then. Yeah,
0: sure. Yeah, well, you had the whole surfing thing was just happening. Beach Boys thing was going on. Uh, And all
1: the TV shows were from L.A.
0: Yes, that's right. That's right. You know, and you're talking about Morris Levy. I think Hanky Panky. And I'm only guessing just from reading the book that he had done, I guess, okay prior to that. But I think Hanky Panky really put him in the chip.
1: We had 23 gold singles on Roulette. Yeah, amazing. And we did about 110 million records there, Jeez. and of course everything changed for Morris and Roulette. We became basically the big. Well, we became the biggest artist they had. And we also, I learned my craft of producing records Mm -hmm. and writing songs, and none of that would have happened at one of the corporate labels, you know. Right. If if we had gone with Columbia or RCA or, you know, one of the... Big corporate labels. I can tell you right now that we would have been, especially with a record like Hanky Panky, we would have been turned over to a local, you know, an in-house A and R guy, and that's the last anybody would have
0: heard from us. Well, you know, and it's interesting because I reflect on the the way that Harper's came up through Warner's on the West Coast. It was the wrecking crew was the studio musicians. Warner's wouldn't allow us to play any of our instruments, and we didn't on the. First four albums, we didn't play any instruments right. until we finally. Were you the guitar uh, player? I, I was one of the guitar players. I was the rhythm guitar player. I see. But our lead guitar player and our bass player rarely came to the studio because my singing partner Ted Templeman and I were the only two that were needed to lay the vocals down. Right. We didn't do anything with the music, so right. uh, and that that persisted through four albums. So I know what you're talking about. And that was Warner's corporate. Style where they really didn't discuss much with you. They simply sure. said, here's your recording date. Going you were, disp-
1: on. you know, no.
0: acts were disposable. I think so, and I, it kind of reminded me, probably even though I wasn't old enough, of what it must have been like in the movie business, say maybe in the 40s, where you, you were, to, as an actor, you were just told, be here on such and such a date. Right. And it didn't matter how famous you were. That had nothing to do with it. You you were signed, you signed a contract, and that was the deal Yes, indeed.
1: You're, You're absolutely right.
3: Time to visit the Music Factory for a coffee break. Take a listen to this, and we'll return in just a moment.
0: Everybody's checking out all the bodies that are cruising down the drag tonight. There's a guy looking out for a girl and another looking for a fight. They call it Beach Street Saturday night. Hey, everybody's on the beach street Saturday night. Come on, rock and roll, the beach street,
1: Saturday night. Come on, catch the show at Beach Street Saturday night. Hey.
0: A lot of pretty little things will be a-striving and a-flirting around here tonight. And if you're looking for a thing, put on a button-down shirt and get your hair cut right. Get down to B-Street. Later in today's show, I'm going to tell you my story about type 2 diabetes. But first, let's talk about Longevity, the program that I've joined that was started by Dr. Joel Wallach, who's on a 40-year mission to educate people about proper nutrition and supplementation, which is the real solution for optimal health and longevity. I've set up a website to tell you all about it, ReduceYourNumbers.com. That's it, www.reduceyournumbers.com reduceyournumbers.com. I put my story on that site to let you know what I'm doing to improve my health. Both my wife Mimi and I use Longevity supplements every day. And as a result, now I'm a crusader for Doc Wallach and what I consider to be the best health program I have yet to encounter. So please check it out at www.reduceyournumbers.com.
3: Sure,
1: yeah. You know, doing business was like taking a bone from a Doberman, you know? Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, getting your royalties was just not going to happen. But on the other hand, we were having such monumental success at Roulette, and I was learning how to produce, and I was I was able to put my own production crew together. And I could use studio players if I wanted to, but I had, you know, my my group... Was was recording right alongside the uh, some of the studio guys that we'd have in doing percussion and things, and so I really learned my craft in a way I could never have learned at one of the big corporate
0: labels. Well, and you also could go, go out on the road with the same musicians. They'd already been yes. playing all this stuff. So.
1: That was a, a uh, tremendous you know, feather in our cap to be able to do both.
0: Well, I'm trying to trying to get a read as I, as I go through the book on the personality of Morris Levy and, and do you think were, were you ever impressed when you played him songs and you played him a ton of stuff and most of them were giant hit records. Did you Think that he really understood uh, the music, or was he not that much of a
3: musician?
1: Well, you know, the odd thing is Morris heard hits. Yeah, he really did. He was a—he uh, had great ears. He couldn't make records. He was limited in a lot of ways, but when he heard when you he played him a hit, he knew it, and he wasn't afraid to kick you out of the office if he thought what you had was garbage <laughs> either. You know, yeah, right. But what I'm saying is Morris Levy, with all of his, you know. Morris was every bit a thug. Don't get me wrong, but, I, you know, he had honorable traits, too. I mean, there, I, every time I go to say something really negative or really bad about Morris Levy and Roulette, I have to stop myself. Because the truth is, if it wasn't for Morris Levy, there wouldn't have been a Tommy James.
0: Yeah, that was a, appeared to be a total ongoing hot-cold, hot-cold, hot-cold relationship. It was a real
1: love-hate relationship. Yeah, it yeah,
0: really was. Yeah, it was. I call
1: it an abuse father-son relationship, you know, where he slaps the kid around and sends him to college. Yeah, right. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: You know, I'm talking about so many of the hit records, uh, and the the list is a mile long, and I love the CD, by the way. I think Record Plant uh, did the uh, CD. The sound on it is spectacular. Your uh, singing is spectacular. Thank you. Um, What do you consider to be some of your most notable successes throughout your life what are what would you call some of the
1: high well peaks? first of all i'd have to say that hanky panky was an event that changed my life so dramatically that uh, nothing was ever the same afterwards yeah the good lord just reached down and picked me up out of obscurity and landed me in new york, middle in new york with a lot of people helping me yeah and you know, because I really, my career is really the sum total of all the people who, who were involved with us. I mean, I think of guys up at the record company like Red Schwartz, who was the uh, head of promotion at Roulette, made more, millions of dollars. Never made more than three hundred dollars a week.
0: That's just
3: amazing. You know, what I mean? yeah, just <laughs> and amazing. And
1: taught me the radio business. Uh, Bo Gentry and Richie Cordell, my first two producers, who taught me how to make records the engineer, Bruce Staple, over at Allegro, where I I recorded most of our hits. You know, I learned the science of making records. Mm -hmm. And so all I can say is that I'm, I really, and of course radio itself, we were a creation of radio. Some acts, you know, were a creation of uh, songwriting and and touring and, you know, playing live. We were a creation of radio. Mm -hmm. So I owe so much to so many people that, unfortunately, aren't with us anymore. And every time I'm on stage or you know hearing one of my records, I I remember that that this really was a an amazing group of people that launched my career and kept it going.
0: You know, what's interesting about that is that you think when you're first starting in the music business, you learn as much about it as possible and you start drawing what you think is a roadmap. But for me, and I bet for you, with all the various new associations that came out of the blue, there really wasn't a clear roadmap. You kept meeting people that maybe you didn't even expect to meet who all of a sudden turned out to be this. That's or that. right.
1: Yeah, it turned out to be important because you had no right. clue it would ever be Exactly, important. yeah. And, well, you're absolutely right. And because, you know, there were no, no grown ups telling me what to do, there was this, uh, there was Morris who, uh, strangely enough, taught me a lot. About the business of the music business. So uh, while all this was going on, you know, while we're having hits with "I Think We're Alone Now" and "Mony Mony" and "Crimson Clover" and so forth, every one of those records was like a um, an event and has its own. Story and it's uh, you know every one of them is like a little a separate industry.
0: You know, I'm curious as you you rattle off all those names and uh, some of I know you wrote some of the hits or co-wrote some of the hits. uh, Did you get ever get any publishing money for that?
1: Well, yes. I mean, uh, later on, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but later on uh, in the uh, late '80s, Morris was arrested and convicted of racketeering. Okay. Yeah, And he was sentenced to 10 years, which, by the way, he never served a day of because he died of cancer uh, before he could go to prison. But he sold Roulette and all the masters, and he sold the publishing company and all the songs to EMI and Warners. And finally, I was getting paid for all of the... Music that I didn't get paid for before. Of course, I didn't make all. You know, they tallied it up, and we lost between thirty and forty million dollars being with Roulette. But we made a great. I made a great deal of it back um, when Morris sold the company. And the interesting part is, we had to constantly make a decision: do we stay with this? record company that we're having we're having so much success just one hit after another after another uh, or do we try to get off the label because we're not making them making the royalties we should be and i think we ended up making the right decision by staying because uh, well i get to tell the story for once oh sure <laughs> but also we would have never had that kind of individual success i don't believe on a label where we would have had, you know, one of the corporate labels where we would have had to compete with 30 other acts.
0: Sure, yeah. That situation just seems like it was tailored to you, yeah, and you may not have known it at the time, and there probably was any number of times when you said, I'm not getting paid, what's the deal? But you were making money on the road, and uh, that was enough to really make it happen. And writing
1: money from BMI and, and, you know, all the things. I would have never had the education with the Columbia Records, for example, that I got at Roulette.
0: Any other well-known people uh, that have left a memorable impression on you? I know that throughout the book there's all kinds of names, and a, a lot of them are gangster names, but anyone else that just jumps to mind in terms of leaving a memorable impression?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, there's a ton of people. Most of them you've never heard of, but uh, like I said, Red Schwartz. Yeah. Who Who was the promotion man at Roulette for years? Uh, Just uh, was like a like an uncle to me, you know, and and just uh, taught me the entire radio business and how the record business and the radio business worked together, and all the program directors and and so forth. Uh, I learned a great deal from my engineer. Okay. I learned, uh, you know, uh, how to to craft. I learned my craft, really, from my engineer, Bruce Staple, at Allegro, who cut so many hits, other people's hits.
0: Did I read somewhere near this, I think maybe near the end of the book, because you're talking about engineer, you guys would use an oscillator to speed up the track? Mm-hmm. a little bit, okay, and what yeah. we used to do, and I was waiting to come across it in your book, and you mentioned it, we didn't use oscillators, we used what was known as wrapping. Wrapping the capstan. Yeah, you wrap a piece of tape around the capstan and speeds it up. I don't it believe you it said that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, when I started to read the oscillator thing, I thought, I'll bet this is coming up, and it did come up, <laughs> you referred to it. So, but we had, with Harper's, uh, five wraps was a stock for us. Oh,
1: exactly. Yeah. Ooh, that's a lot.
0: Well, it's a lot, and actually it took Feeling Groovy out of our live range, which didn't matter. People didn't know. And anyway, right. we couldn't sing that high. At start. It wasn't sounding like the Chipmunks, but it was approaching that. <laughs> it, so. It's somewhere
1: <laughs> in between. Yeah, right, exactly. Somewhere we were like the Aardvarks or something. Yeah, yeah, well, well you, know, uh, you know, to this day, I use things that I learned Between 66, 67, and 68, because we literally uh, went from four tracks to 24 tracks in about a year and a half.
3: Yeah, that's right.
1: And then, of course, today with Pro Tools and all the digital... Um, uh, digital gadgets we have in the studio, we would have killed for that technology back 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But I, I really, you know, all I can say is that I have been lucky to experience making records from a historical standpoint where I can see the changes that the business has gone through, both in the studio, you know, with the technology and in retail. What an amazing change there has been. In some ways, it's exactly the same, and in other ways, it's totally different.
0: Well, and you know, the other thing is, is I think at some point, well, I can remember going from two-track to three-track to four to 16, etc., and with each one of those, it was it felt really great to us. However, if you were to reflect back on, let's go back to maybe mid-early 1950s, probably before I was even listening to music, mm-hmm. Hank Williams, not Hank. Hank Williams Jr., but Hank Williams, uh, go on and crazy hard, I can't remember. Someone. Anyway, when you listen to those tunes, they're all in mono, probably no more than a couple of microphones in the entire studio. Sure. You could hear the bass, you could hear the guitar, you could hear all the parts,
1: crystal well, clear. Well, look, it acts like Nat King Cole. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you some of the greatest recordings there ever were. Uh, recorded mono.
0: Yes, and, and when you think about it, so now you've got 24 tracks or 100 tracks in front of you, or today, 1,000 or however many digitally you want, yeah. you can easily get into trouble, and at the end of an eight-hour mixing session, someone says, what happened to the voices? Where did they go? Because you keep bringing up the tambourine louder and louder or whatever. you got all of that.
1: That's right. Well, of course, my first record, Hanky Panky, was recorded mono, in a radio studio, WNIL, in Niles, Michigan.
3: Wow, yeah.
1: And and uh, with a little tape reverb added, you know. Uh, and that was it. And we, you know, what uh, we, we played it live. played and sang live, and that was Hanky Panky. Well,
0: was that the actual number one hit release version? Yes. Was that? Yes. Wow, okay. We never
1: re-recorded it. Yeah. And, of course, now, one of the most frustrating parts is... Not being hands on. I'm a very hands on producer. I like to be able to almost do what the engineer is doing and, 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 uh, with the, you know, the faders and sure. and everything. Yeah. And it's very frustrating because working with Pro Tools, for example, it's almost like painting by numbers. Mm hmm. You have to go through the engineer, and it's like telling Rembrandt, all right, now now put a little orange up here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, have to work through somebody else's hand. So, anyway, in in so many ways, it's great, though, because, you know, you never sing another flat note in your life, but uh, it is frustrating. Well,
0: it is, and when you have that kind of control, I think it can easily get out of hand, and you You can overproduce. Yeah, you sure can.
1: I
3: do believe it's toe tapping time. Let's see if we can squeeze a quick music break here. We're coming right back.
0: But she's earlier in the show I mentioned that I would tell you more about the latest health program that I'm on. I've had the good fortune to lead a relatively healthy life, although I'm not sure I can chalk it up to plenty of exercise and a wholesome diet. I've never lasted longer than three months in any health club, and most of my days are spent in front of a computer, but I've been a little surprised by the number of guests that I interview on this show who have type 2 diabetes. Most of us are in the Baby Boomer age range. I'm 72 and for me, age 50 was when I found out I had type 2 diabetes. I've used various prescriptions over the years and some of them have helped reduce my numbers a bit, maybe down into the 130 range. Typical numbers for non-diabetics 90 to 110. Two years ago, I cut back on sugary processed foods and my blood sugar numbers came down, though not as much as I had hoped. I lost 18 pounds, but not Not for long, the weight came back again. Recently, I started using longevity supplements, and my diabetes numbers have come down even more. My morning numbers now are between 85 and 114. I can't say for sure why my numbers have dropped, but I can suggest that you take a closer look at the supplement packs I'm using, like the Healthy Body Blood Sugar Pack. Uh, My wife Mimi is using the Healthy Body Weight Loss Pack. You can find these two supplements. Supplements on my website, reduceyournumbers.com, or just call me at 888 653 4399. You know, in spite of all of our successes, there probably was a few hills that we couldn't climb. What's your best failure story? Failure? Yeah, what was the biggest thing you yeah. bumped up against well, that you couldn't
1: course, get around? One of them has to be being a lousy businessman. Ah, okay. That, I really paid paid dues for that. I've just been thankful. I've been very fortunate that my career has has outlasted those kind of failures where I've been able to make a great deal of it back. But still, you know, I was I was just a terrible businessman. I was interested in the hits, but I just wasn't keeping track of what that meant from a
0: business standpoint. Yeah. I think my guess is, because I was the same way, uh, I think when you're as close to music as being the artist, the star on stage, uh, that's what draws you there. That's where you spend most of your time. Sure. You make an assumption that all of this other uh, group of people around you are handling are all that stuff. Yeah, right. Exactly. Taking care of everything. Yes, sure, right? sure. And so you don't get involved with it. But then there does come a time, and I'm sure it happened to you, after the 60s when you started looking at all the numbers and the various other things, and you were probably more drawn to it at that point, um, I would guess.
1: Well, of You know, as you grow up, you realize the mistakes you made along that er area. And also, uh, there was a lot of records that would have made great singles that we didn't finish. You know, half-finished songs. As a matter of fact, on our new album, Alive, I've done several of them. I can't believe we're talking about this, but the very last song that Morris Levy and I agreed on, I never got a chance to record. It's called Distant Thunder, and I recorded it on this album. Finally, I mean, you know, things like that, I've... I've been very lucky that uh, the man upstairs has been looking out for me like he has because, it, as it, uh, at any moment, my career could have just gone over the edge.
0: Well, and what's interesting? So now you, with the newest album, how long has it been out? Did it just come out, or no?
1: It's, it's coming out uh, the first quarter of next year. That's
0: right. Yes. All right. So early two thousand eighteen, and right. it's called Alive
1: in 10 years.
0: And is it Tommy James or Tommy James and the Shondells? It'll be Tommy
1: James.
0: Okay. All right. Well, we got definitely got to look for that. There may have been a time in our younger years when we were as fit as a fiddle. I don't know if that's still the case with you, but how's your health
3: now? Well,
1: I've been lucky uh in that regard too because uh you know i've been able you know being on the road is like being in uh being an athlete oh yeah you know every sure. year you feel it a little more and uh but you know it's like when you're on stage for an hour and a half it's like doing calisthenics for an hour and a half sure. been very lucky I've, I've stayed strong and and healthy and i'm you know i knock on wood and cross my fingers when i say that yeah,
0: and are you doing most of your travel by airplane or by a vehicle
1: no by plane we're flying to where we need to go okay we're basically doing it the old-fashioned way nice. i only will work one night a week
3: oh good for you I just, okay.
1: I, I, in fact i was that way when i was 20 years old really yeah, I, I just, I don't know how these guys do it. They go out and work for six months at a time. If I ever did that, if I ever tried doing Money Money six nights a <laughs> week, oh, they'd find me under a trestle somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> right, <laughs> but, yeah.
0: And that's a question I have for so many of the people I talk to. I can't imagine. I'm 72. I can't imagine going out on the road. Uh, I'm in Bed by nine
1: thirty. Uh, well, you know, guys, it's, it's very important that you know. I I stopped smoking and drinking thirty one years ago. Really? Yes, and I'm so glad it made all the difference in the world. I'm a dull guy, but at least, I, but I'm still going.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're still going. Well, I've been off. I've been off cigarettes for two years, as oh. of three days
1: ago. So wow, well, uh, you can keep it up. And you know, if, if we actually ever partied the way we got credit for. We wouldn't make it to 40.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's part of the whole thing about showbiz, too. And, uh, you know, a lot of people on the outside really don't have a clue as to how all of that works. But you have had, again, reading the books, uh, any number of challenging experiences. Can you talk about what's been your most challenging either in or out of showbiz? It really doesn't matter. What's the toughest thing you've come up against?
1: Well, one of them certainly has to be uh, chemicals. Yeah. Um, I stopped doing chemicals of all kinds thirty-one years ago. I went to the Betty Ford Center, and the last two chemicals for me were booze and Valium. <laughs> That's a bad combination. And in the sixties, I was I was popping uppers, and you know, I I learned my lesson well. I just you know, I just stopped. I just couldn't. Stand myself anymore, and so I haven't had any chemicals in me for thirty-one years, and I, I feel great.
0: Well, you talked about the Betty Ford thing uh, quite a bit in the book near the end of the book, and and um, that whole experience it seemed to have like a major impact on you. Oh, At least definitely. That's the way it sounded from the book. It did.
1: Oh, you better believe it. Yeah. Well. For because I just, I mean, my voice, I i got another octave range huh. in my voice that I never had before. Yeah. It has really been a total lifesaver for me. And the idea of, there's 20,000 stories I could be talking about, all of the uh, the wonders of of being completely clear-headed after you've been foggy-headed for so long. But what it really boils down to is that I really love what I do like I never have before.
0: You know, as I get older, I think more about my uh, philosophy of life, which is a pretty big question now, but wasn't even in my thinking back in my 20s. Would you be up for sharing some of the wisdom, including spiritual wisdom, that you've gained over the years? Of course. Yeah, take it away.
1: Well, I mean, you mean now? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, what have you (laughs) learned? look, I I am a, a Christian, I, I have been a Christian since 1967. I was brought up uh, Catholic okay, and went to parochial school and so forth. And I wanted a little bit deeper walk with the Lord in, in the late 60s and became in what they call today an evangelical Christian. It sounds very formal, but I just uh, read my Bible and, and loved the Lord. And, and that is basically where I'm coming from. I couldn't stand the fact that I was, you know, I felt like such a hypocrite then getting high. And so when, when I finally uh, unloaded that, it was such an amazing transformation because, you know, I felt like I had the best of both worlds.
0: What's going on now? What's coming up? I'm looking at your schedule. I see uh, Las Vegas Golden Nugget Casino.
1: Well, we're, we're all over the United States. If anybody would like to come and check us out, just come to TommyJames.com. And we also, of course, are on Facebook. Just come and say hi.
0: I'm curious to see what's going to happen after the album Alive comes out. Sure. I really have to tell listeners, you've got to check out the book. The reason I say that, and I'm not hyping it unnecessarily, uh, because I've been in the business myself, there is not a lot out there that is the story of what goes on on almost a daily basis. Well, and, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> and, and this, this me, the mob, and the music, uh, the, that's it. It is the story. What do you think, uh, what's it looking like on a movie shot? Do you think it's going to come together?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Barbara Dufina, Did I, I I don't know if I went through this or not, Barbara Dufina, who produced Goodfellas oh, yeah. and Casino, uh-huh. And uh, the Color of Money, and Cape Fear, and Hugo, a couple of years ago, with Martin Scorsese, is mm-hmm. producing the movie. Terrific! And the the screenplay has been just finished by Matthew Stone, who did a marvelous job. He really, I got to tell you, it is, I have such respect for these screenplay writers because they have to take the narrative of a book and then tell the same story with dialogue and characters. Yeah and it's not easy to do. And uh, he did a marvelous job, and I'm very, very happy with the screenplay. And uh, now they're choosing a director. I'm watching all this come together. I'm getting a a great education watching this. It is amazing any movie ever gets made. Oh, I'm sure. With all the people that have to come on board, and each one is a separate negotiation, and a, a separate, you know, everybody's got an ego, and everybody's got a schedule. We're probably looking at another, oh, close to two years
0: I would I would think so any feel at all for the lead role I mean anybody in your mind Well, I,
1: you know the funny part is the two characters that matter the most in this in this story is, are going to be Morris Levy who Morris Levy is really the star of the show then a uh, Tommy James character and he's going to the, he's going to have to play guitar as badly as I do. That's one of the problems.
3: <laughs> All right. Yeah. And
1: then, um, you know, it's funny. Jamie Foxx ruined it for everybody doing music movies because he played Ray Charles so great. And he sang and sounded like it. Yeah, I know. So now everybody's going to have to do it that way now. There's no more lip syncing. and But the, the real story, of course, with Me the Mob and the Music is this... Scary and dysfunctional relationship between myself and Morris Levy, and that that worked.
3: It worked. Oh, absolutely, it
1: worked. And and uh, uh, so uh, you know, it's a it's a whole lot of uh, stuff that has to come together. But I'm I'm very excited about the you know the because it is a very compelling story when you get back. You don't think of it as being that compelling when you're living it, but. But it is interesting when you when you step back and look at the story.
0: Well, I was thoroughly captivated by it in part because I've been to some of the things that you did, so I understood yeah. some of that. But I was also captivated by the East Coast thing that I was not familiar with that was very predominant throughout uh, throughout the story. So what I'd like to do is after uh, live comes out, let's say sometime maybe in the next maybe six months or a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to get back to you, kind of get an update of what's going oh, on yeah. with the new album, Absolutely. if we got any more info on the making of the movie. and So let's plan on a revisit at some point. I, was,
1: I would be honored.
0: And uh, I've had a ball talking with you. There's so much information. that I run into this a lot. There's not enough time in an hour to get everything. <laughs> there literally isn't. And particularly when you've got a book like me the mob and the music there is that's like three hours rock bottom so well,
1: thank you so much it was really great talking with you and certainly you certainly asked all the right questions oh good
0: all right well i'm glad you were able to come on and we shall talk again soon we
1: will talk soon
0: great nice talking with you good talking to you too take care bye-bye yeah bye-bye some of you probably already know that the America's Oldies But Goodies podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher.com, and iHeartRadio. And I've got my own app, which you can get through the iTunes app store. Just do a search for America's Oldies But Goodies. As Chris mentioned earlier in the show, you need to visit my website, America's Oldies But Goodies.com, and not only take a listen to the archives of all of our shows, but to check out the Groovy merchandise. For all you health-conscious baby boomers, because I'm type 2 diabetic, you're going to want to check out my other website called ReduceYourNumbers.com. It features nutritional supplements to lower your blood sugar and also for weight loss. You'll find those at ReduceYourNumbers.com. And finally, email me with your suggestions on what guests you'd like me to have on the show. I'd love to hear from you. So until next week, keep your
2: face in a smile. It makes everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scopatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at goodies.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The Swingin' 60s. I'm John Berg. See you then.